Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. This podcast is now a member of the Agora Podcasting Network. We are podcasters interested in sharing ideas and information, and each month we get together to highlight one of our fellow members. This month we are highlighting Chris Stewart's History of China, and I could not be more pleased. Honestly, this was one of the first podcasts I started listening to after the History of Rome, and it's still one of the best. Chinese history can be daunting for the podcaster and the podcasty alike. Beyond the weird names and the long-drawn-out arguments about which form of Anglicization is correct, Chinese history represents a history that is both extremely important to world history, but somewhat cut off from any common points of reference. And yet Chris, like a modern Tsiang Yu, dives in undaunted. With exquisite detail, Chris tells the millennia's long story of Chinese history, all while carefully balancing legitimate history with the stories and legends that make reality less painful. I've been a huge fan of the history of China for years, and I even kind of ripped off his whole branding strategy because I liked it so much uh, when I started taking donations. So head on over to the History of China podcast and give it a listen. It will help you drown out the crushing meaninglessness of reality for many, many hours. We looked for the light, and behold, there were shadows. We sought help and do not dare to go out of the walls of the city. For before your coming to Rome... We had every kind of tranquility, but now, truly, there is a tempest of intolerable and unbearable persecution, since neither our spiritual son, Augustus, nor man of any other kind gives aid, and unless the highest divinity relieves us, or I have fallen into some desperation, since not only double, as God says, but also triple and quadruple armies we see advancing against us. We shall sue for peace, request those things that are of peace, or certainly not only are we forcibly put under their yoke, but, captured by them, we shall be impiously murdered. Letter from Pope John VIII to the Empress Richardus Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings! You're traveling from Wittenberg to Westphalia. I'm your host with this, episode 19, Guy the Rage. Let us get back to the Gadeshi at long last. When we left our heroes, seemingly everyone of Frankish origin in Europe had died of, uh, natural causes, all within a few years. 
But let's pick the story back up in 882, a little bit before we entered the last podcast, with Lambert dying outside the walls of Capua, but not yet dead. Imagine in your mind's eye, if you will, to his right and his left are his son, who was probably in his late teens or early twenties, and his brother, an important landlord and a skilled military leader. It simplifies things that these two men were both named Guy. Also still alive in 882 was Pope John VIII, who had few good things to say about Lambert. Indeed, though the two men were theoretically allies, they had spent most of their reigns increasingly at odds, and in the last few years, local land disputes had become increasingly direct and violent. Meanwhile, in the north, politics were at a standstill, due to all the death. Charles the Bald and his worthless son, Louis the Stammerer, had died in 877 and 879, respectively, and Louis's sons, Louis and Carloman, would die in 882 and 884. This outbreak of <clears throat> natural deaths, combined with Viking attacks and dissension among the local nobility to drive western Francia into absolute chaos. Eastern Francia had been divided up by the sons of Louis the German, but those sons remained on good terms and followed the lead of their eldest brother, Carloman of Bavaria. When Carloman suffered a stroke after invading Italy, he peacefully abdicated his leadership role to his second brother, Louis, while his territory, centered on Bavaria, went to his illegitimate son, Arnulf. Louis had a promising son named Hugh, who unfortunately died in a successful battle against the Vikings, so he died a hero. But so it was that when Louis died in 882, it was the third son of Louis the German, a man known as Charles the Fat, who took the throne of eastern Francia. Though also marked by a rapid succession of leaders who seemed to come and go, there was a coherence to eastern Frankish leadership that was absent in the west. This relative political harmony, combined with the relatively less severe Viking raids in the east, created the odd situation where the civilized and developed western Francia was beset by starvation and chaos, while eastern Francia was reaping the benefits of a growing economy and a growing civilization. From the point of view of the Gadeshi, this was probably all for the best, as the situation with the two guys was ripe for succession struggle. Both men were canny and proven leaders. If the younger guy had less experience, he also had a better claim. The older guy may have lacked a good claim to family leadership, but he was a war hero and a talented political operator in a time when direct father-son succession was not yet assumed. Given the by now familiar Gadeshi underhandedness, we might expect some sort of trick. But instead, the older guy, brother of Lambert, swore loyalty to his nephew and served him without reservation. We can know nothing of the interpersonal feelings of these men, of course, but given some of the events of today's episode, I think there's a strong case to be made for family loyalty. Whatever the touchy-feelies of the situation, Lambert died before the walls of Capua in 882, surrounded by an army of loyal supporters, his eldest son and his brother. The brother supported the claim of the son to the ducal throne, and so it was that the son guy became Guy II of Spolento thus making the rest of this episode way less confusing. This brings us back to John VIII. John had never really liked Lambert. Lambert had, after all, sacked Rome twice within living memory. So maybe it was with a certain degree of hope for the future that John made the effort to do the right thing, the Christian thing, and send a condolence note to the young duke to try and patch up their differences. This is certainly how the chroniclers tell it. John hoped that with a new ruler, a new day would dawn, where the papal states and the Gadeshi would be at peace, and together, possibly dominate central Italy? To say the least, Guy had other ideas. 
What they were is basically impossible for us to say. The Chronicle of the Southern Lombards either ignores or hilariously misinterprets these events, while the Chronicle of Liutprand of Cremona had not yet begun. The other chroniclers of this time were over the Alps in the north, so there's a certain lack of primary source documentation, even such primary source documentation as there was in the Middle Ages. Uh, and as we will see, this is all rather frustrating. These events will set in motion a rather ominous set of dominoes, but let me tell you what we do know, and then maybe we can fill in some educated guesses. 1. John sends the letter offering condolences to Guy. 2. Guy gets the letter. 3. Guy takes his dad's army, turns it north, blasts past the Saracen camp at Gaeta, and invades the Papal States. 4. John sends out a mass of angry and increasingly terrified letters to imperial leaders. Five, or possibly six, within a few weeks Guy is besieging Rome. Six, or possibly five, the Pope is assassinated by an angry mob. Okay, now let's fill some of this in. We have the letter, or a version of the letter, from Guy to John, as interpreted by chroniclers. We don't know how Guy took it or if the messenger had any choice words to add, or if this is even the original letter, but Guy apparently responded by sprinting north in what the Pope described as a rage. He may have just had this as a plan for some time. That's how the chroniclers seem to prefer it, which casts Guy as the evil guy and the Pope as the guy who was just trying to make peace. But I have my doubts. Given all the rage and the lack of let's say, consolidation or follow-through after initial success, it doesn't seem super well planned out. It's possible that he was a young guy and he was bored by the Siege of Capua and was looking for a quick early win for his reign and the Papal States just looked like a better target than trying to conquer Capua yet again. A more fun version of this story, and the version I kind of prefer, is that since Lambert died in excommunicate and the Gadeshi were apparently a loving family, it's possible that Guy took John's note as a bit of gloating. The tone of the note may have been altered, and anyway, John was not really known for his skilled use of diplomacy. Diplomacy for John was a blunt force instrument. Whatever the case, Guy had the advantage of not having to gather up and supply his medieval army. It was there, with him, outside of Capua, sitting on supplies intended for a long siege. So he turned and moved north fast. Pope John reacted in his usual manner writing angry letters, and making bad geopolitical decisions. Of course, the letters flew fast and thick to anyone who would listen, and we have a bunch of them. But in particular, John focused on Berengar of Friuli and Charles the Fat, king of the Eastern Franks. With the Western Franks already in chaos, John made the fateful move of offering the imperial crown to Charles the Fat, youngest son of Louis the German. If you have recently listened to the last episode on the Gideshi that I released you will know that this was something of a major reversal of policy for John, who had spent most of his reign supporting the claim of the Western Franks. And he did this for a guy described by historians as Charles the Fat, so that was a good call, undoubtedly. Podcast footnote. It's roughly in here somewhere that John wrote the letter that is the intro for today's episode, which was addressed to Charles the Fat's wife. Incidentally, the intro today was read by Mr. Thomas Daly, friend of the show, and creator of the American Biography Podcast. If you haven't listened to the American Biography Podcast, because maybe you're not one of those people who's into biographies, well, fear not, it's actually quite a good show. He's currently doing the biography of John Marshall, 
the Supreme Court Justice, who was so influential, and it's been quite a great series so far, and I really recommend it. Anyway, Tom, thanks for the intro. End podcast footnote. At any rate, Charles took him up on the offer and began to head for Italy. Well, head for is probably the wrong word. From the description of Fulda the Chronicler, I think maybe saunter is a better word, or possibly mosey. Drift? Meanwhile, Guy was moving towards Rome with the speed and ferocity that John described as ragio, or rage, and this became the nickname for Guy, Guy the Rage, or Guido Ragio. This was all set to be the most lopsided race in history, but ultimately, neither Guy the Rage nor Charles the Fat got to John first. As I described last time, he was brutally assassinated by the people of Rome themselves. John is a pope whose legacy remains controversial. Credited by church loyalists for being a strong-willed and intelligent man who strove to drive back the Saracens and hold firm to the Papal States, his interventions in European politics were often disastrously too smart by half. Probably the most critical failure of John was his domestic policy. We have no details, of course, but as a man who ruled seemingly uncontested only to be assassinated, he seems to have smothered dissent rather than healing it, resulting in a wave of civil unrest after his death. As icing on the cake, we're told that he left the treasury empty, possibly from bribing everyone, though there is some lame attempt in the Liber Pontificalis to blame this on thieves. I am not convinced. Another angle, of course, is the impending presence of Guy the Rage. Some chroniclers describe Guy as actually besieging Rome before John's death. Others just describe him as attacking papal territory. Either way, the overlap of these events with the death of John is interesting and telling and probably not coincidental. Perhaps the mob was as sick of John's bad decision-making as the Gadeshi were, particularly if the treasury was empty and a rage-filled, morally flexible army was at the gates. But... More insidiously, and not to give too many spoilers, some historians have suggested that since chroniclers would describe the Gadeshi as infiltrating and later controlling the Roman aristocracy within a generation, this outburst of mob violence could have been something a little bit more targeted. Either way, Guy had a new nickname, Charles had a crown, and after dealing with a wave of riots, Rome had a new pope, Pope Marius. Marius, lucky man, inherited a papacy being actively devoured by the Gadeshi and with no money in the treasury. He was spared the papacy's wholesale consumption by the arrival, late in the year, of Charles the Fat. Charles sent some sternly worded memos to Guy, and everyone went back into their corner to cool off. Charles then announced a diet to be held in Ravenna, Italy, uh, to discuss and work through everyone's problems. Despite this imperially brokered ceasefire, Paramilitary groups apparently continued the fighting between the Papal States and the Gadeshi factions all along their extensive border. Now, lest we feel sorely towards the Papacy and the Gadeshi for violating the ceasefire, we should note that at this time chaos could be described as pandemic in northern Italy. Outside of the major duchies, the nobility were forming fractions and feuding over their land, uh, this feuding infected even Charles' own entourage, which was described as exceptionally riven by factionalism and paranoia. So the feuding between the Pope and the Gadeshi was possibly not an overly exceptional case, but was in fact representative of an economically unstable society that had been without real central governmental control for about a generation at this point. At Ravenna, Pope Marius and the Gadeshi both presented their case, and then Guy possibly figuring that his word might not carry as much weight as the Pope's, declared that he was very, very sorry, 
and would return the stolen papal lands. Everyone went their separate ways, and Charles settled into Pavia to have a nice rest after all that sauntering. Surprising no one but possibly Charles, the arrangement from Ravenna lasted only a few months. Pope Marius sent letters almost immediately to Charles, saying that not only had the Gadeshi not returned the lands they had taken, but that Guy the Rage was actually in the field attacking the papacy again. So a new diet was called, and again everyone went north, this time to a city called Nonatola. Everyone was set to hear all the arguments when word got round to Guy that he had already been declared a traitor. Or, according to different sources, everyone made their arguments and Guy was condemned, but everyone forgot to arrest him. Uh, at any rate, it's clear that everyone went to the Diet, but no one thought or was able to confiscate Guy's weapons or separate him from his men before he learned that the decision of the court was a potential capital sentence. And so it was that the Gadeshi and their retainers fought their way out of Nonatola and headed back to Spalento all the way across Italy. Despite being on hand in Italy for this embarrassment, Charles decided that real leadership lay in delegation, and so Berengara Friuli was sent to deal with the Gadeshi, while Charles continued to rest up in Pavia. Guy now pulled a new trick. He needed someone who could overmatch Friuli, but who would also benefit from an alliance with Spolento. The Lombards were too weak, the Pope hated him, the Byzantines were tied up fighting the, hey, how about the Saracens, the enemies of Christianity? Yeah, the Saracens. There were a bunch right between Capua and Rome. He had avoided them on his way to go beat up the Pope. And so it was that Guy the Rage of Spolento formed an alliance with the Saracen pirates. Together, Guy and his newfound friends blew through the territories of the papacy and set about ravaging the Po Valley from one end to the other. When Berengar showed up, things looked like there might be a fight. But wouldn't you know it, when you get together a bunch of people in the Po Valley from a bunch of different places in the summer, well, one thing leads to another, and everyone got sick. Both armies, the civilian population, even Charles the Fat in Pavia, everyone came down with horrible illnesses. The armies scattered, and Guy the Rage was killed by horrible illnesses, along with several thousand of his closest friends and enemies. Now, in many ways, Guy the Rage had died probably just in time. I don't really see him continuing much longer in his accustomed vein, and he had made some serious enemies. To wit, after being forced back by the same plague that killed Guy the Rage, Berengar of Friuli returned, and this time he brought along his friend, Arnulf of Carinthia, son of Carloman the Bavarian. Faced with a foe doubled in size and regimented with some very scary-looking Germans, the Gadeshi had two problems. First, they needed a new duke, and second, they needed to not be destroyed. In terms of the first goal, that of finding a new duke, there was really only one option at this point. Guy the Rage had left behind a son, but the boy was an infant, and this was probably not the time to be going down the road of a child duke. The only other real option was Uncle Guy, the one who had so loyally served his father, brother, and nephew. Now he took the ducal throne for himself. He's known to history as Guy III of Spolento. Guy scrupulously guarded his nephew's son, who will be returning to our story again later. Again, call me soft, but I consider this some sort of evidence of familial loyalty. But this was no time for fancy coronation parties. Berengar and Arnulf were coming with a massive army, and the Gadeshi army had just been scattered by the plague. Guy III sized up the situation, and decided on a bold course of action. He blamed the dead guy. 
It wasn't me, it was my nephew. Look, can we all get along? The Saracens all died of the plague, so we're all Christians here. Have mercy, etc. Possibly somewhat strangely, Arnulf and Berengar decided to go along with it. Since Charles didn't seem to care very much, busy as he was getting crowned King of the Western Franks and indulging in pretenses of rivaling Charlemagne. And so it was, with a sternly worded warning to Guy III, that Arnulf and Berengar headed north, where wider events waited. Guy III had thus dodged a bullet by showing caution, humility, and sleaziness. This would characterize the first few years of his reign fairly well. As it happened, Pope Marius had died by this time, and the empire was distracted by the leisurely attempts of Charles the Fat to hold the empire together. With the papacy and the empire both distracted by internal and external foes, Guy III took the chance to consolidate his rule, and was mostly quiet for the next few years. It helped that the new pope, Stephen, was fairly friendly to the Gadeshi. Far be it from me to suggest electoral manipulation by the Gadeshi at this early stage? There is certainly no direct evidence of this in the sources, but at any rate, Guy III and Stephen became best buds, and I mean best buds. Stephen called Guy my spiritual son, and Guy did a bunch of stuff for the Pope, like wiping out the Saracen mercenaries between Capua and Rome. You know, such of them who had straggled back after heading north with Guy the Rage. With the Pope at his back, Guy III went ahead and straight up conquered the city of Benevento, though a large-scale revolt eventually drove him off. Otherwise, Guy III's reign up till 887 was fairly quiet. Things were much less quiet north of the Alps. As we addressed in episode 13, Arnulf and cousin Charles had not always seen eye to eye, and by 887, Arnulf had just about had enough. The empire was in flames due to Viking raids and separatist regions, and Charles seemed to be actively sympathizing with both. In 885, Count Odo had nearly fought off a Viking siege of Paris, only Charles to sweep in and pay them, pay them to attack Burgundy. In 887, the rumor was that he was thinking of making Louis of Provence his heir. Louis was the son of that separatist prince, Bosso of Provence, and Ermengarde from our last Gadeshi episode. So the optics here were off, too. He was thinking of adopting the son of a rebel. This was becoming a pattern, and the nobility of eastern Francia were not happy. The results of all that unhappiness, and all that they portended for the empire, will have to wait till next time, alas, alas. It's a story that was actually the main purpose behind this Gadeshi miniseries, so I don't want to rush it. But as fun as all this has been, and all the big fun that is to come, I hope you can wait just a little bit longer to get into that. I promise it'll be worth the wait. Now, today we discussed the reign of Guy the Rage of Spilento, and how in his brief reign he attacked the Pope, allied with the Saracens, unleashed a bacteriological Armageddon into Italy, and died in the process, leaving Spilento in the hands of his uncle. You may be wondering how I will top this, but to learn that, you will have to tune in next time as we travel from Wittenberg to Westphalia through the Wars of the Reformation. If you need something to tide you over, maybe check out the website. The rollover to Acast is going pretty well, and you will note a lot of new embedded players in all the blog pages, and if you go back to episode 3, you will find a new map, courtesy of the map guy, uh, on the page uh, of Iberia. We're going to get a map of Greater Francia at some point soon, and then we'll just move on from there. So, uh, exciting times, good things are happening. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, I'll, you'll hear from me when you hear from me. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 